Hey, Lily, what's the fastest growing company you've ever worked in? Oh, that's easy. Uh, it's definitely the one I'm in right now, Bauer Collective. Well, that sounds exciting. But are you guys growing or are you hyper growing? Uh, well, it feels like we're hyper growing, but I'm not exactly sure what the definition of hyper growth is. Uh, but that's why we're talking today with Cassidy Fine. She's a veteran of some very fast growing product businesses, and she's here to give us a guide on how to survive and thrive in hypergrowth. That sounds like a good thing. I've heard way too many horror stories about people losing all sense of work-life balance in those environments. I can't wait to hear how she's managed it, so um, let's get right into it. The Product Experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week, we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we can improve our practice and build products that people love. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and to discover an extensive library of great content and videos. Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium articles, unseen videos, AMAs, roundtables, discounts to our conferences around the world, training opportunities, and more. Mind the Product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities, and there's probably one near you. Hey, Cassidy, so nice to have you here on the podcast today. Hey, welcome. I'm so excited to be here. So um, before we get started with our topic of the day, um, it would be great if you could give us a real quick intro into who you are and what you're doing in the world of product and uh, also your kind of origin story, like how you got into it. Yeah, uh, well, I am currently the director of product at Vimeo. Um, I help kind of grow uh, tools around our enterprise side of the business, as well as our kind of ML and AI related tooling as well. Um, really exciting stuff. I've uh, been there for about a year. I'm also an instructor with Mind the Product. So it's been about Yay. three years. Um, I love teaching both classes for um, corporate clients, as well as for the public. Most recently, I was able to teach foundations, which is always a lot of fun meeting kind of new PMs or, um, you know, folks trying to transition into PM. Um, before that, I've been in kind of B2B SaaS my whole life. So it was at a education um, SaaS startup that actually recently got acquired uh, for about six years, helped kind of grow and hone a product team there. And before that, I uh, was at a marketing SaaS platform that also recently got acquired. I guess there's some M&A in the air. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's actually where I kind of got started my sort of product journey. Um, I really started as employee number seven, kind of joined with my friend who was an engineer at the time. We both graduated college and realized we didn't really want to be in the fields that we had studied in. Um, I had studied film. He had studied engineering, but had gotten a job at a large engineering company and just wanted something smaller and, and kind of, you know, being able to kind of do more. Mm. Um, so uh, we joined as employees number six and seven. And when I left about three years later, we were over 300 people across three different offices globally. So it was a really exciting, awesome way to do almost like a mini rotational program. Um, did a little bit of customer success, a little bit of product, a little bit of QA, a little bit of development, a little bit of HR, which is probably illegal now, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and really everything in between so I was able to kind of figure out what I liked, what I didn't like, what I was good at and what I was not good at. Um, so that's kind of really where I where I started. 
And uh, yeah, I think that's, that's really me. Just excited to chat with y'all today. Cool. So when you were doing that job, that initial job, obviously growing from like a team of six or seven, um, which is almost barely a team. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Up to like 300 people. Like, did you have any idea when you started in that business, how quickly it was going to grow? No. And it's funny looking back, we've, you know, I've kept in touch with some folks and I'm still very close to my friend who I started with. We've only really realized how lucky we were and kind of how successful the company was and how it did kind of grow and scale successfully um, versus other folks I spoke to, you know, that have been founders that have worked for other startups that have either just kind of um, plateaued or, you know, ultimately failed and, you know, ran out of funding and they have to go do something else. So uh, definitely not. I had no idea what I was in for. Um, you know, I think we got really lucky, but also we worked incredibly hard. Um, and our, our CEO, uh, Shafkat, was incredibly smart and driven and uh, worked incredibly hard. So it was a mix of all things, but certainly I didn't sign on thinking, yeah, I'll, you know, we'll see how this goes in six months and try something else. I just was kind of there for the ride and it worked out luckily. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's our topic for today. So, um, you know, what it's like to work in a hyper growth sort of business. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how is kind of like hyper growth determined? Uh, what, what does it mean to be in a hyper growth phase Hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, So I've actually been thinking a lot about that. And I have a a concrete kind of not as fun, but actually literal definition. And then I have a kind of more softer kind of definition for other folks. Um, Hypergrowth is defined by the WF uh, as 40% or more growth, I think, year over year of CAGR or compound annual growth rate. Um, I think 20% range is considered rapid growth. And then anything below 20% is considered normal growth. So it does have a kind of literal financial definition, which is nice. I will also say in kind of my experience with it, you know, it's not like you're working somewhere and then as soon as your CAGR shifts into 40%, you're like, oh yeah, it's hyper growth. Everything changes. Like right. it's kind of more of a, a vibe and a feeling sometimes too. Like um, I think in Vimeo our last financial filings were around like 34, 36%. I'd have to double check. Um, but certainly we're close enough that I would consider it hyper growth. It just kind of has all that same sort of feelings of, you know, you're hiring like crazy, you know, all of the things you're working through just seems like there's so many juicy problems and all of them could provide value. It's really just how you hone in and prioritize on those problems and really validate as quickly and cheaply as possible. So there's, there's a definition for you. There's also, I guess, a feeling um, and that's kind of been my experience. Yeah. And I imagine kind of some of the problems that you're, or ch- the challenges that you have when you're in that kind of hyper growth phase, because a lot of the time we're always focused on revenue and driving revenue. Um, but if you're, you know, by definition, you're kind of grow- your revenue is just growing month on month at a certain rate, then you're maybe not so focused on the revenue side of things, but also, but more on like other challenges within the business to just support that revenue growth and keep it sustainable. It's always a mix of both, right? I mean, ultimately it's this funnel of if you are satisfying user problems successfully, that should naturally tie to revenue growth because ultimately you are providing more value for users or users are using your platform in, you know, denser ways, in longer ways and more ways, which should naturally kind of tie to 
um, a higher growth of revenue if you have all your kind of models and pricing kind of figured out appropriately. So it's, I'd say less about focusing directly on the numbers and more of really ensuring you are solving your your personas or your users' problems um, as effectively as possible and kind of where those gaps may be that you can really jump in and tackle right away, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah, yeah. For someone who's not worked in that environment before, you know, from mm-hmm. coming from another type of company and going into a hyper growth type situation, as you said, it's crazy, but the opportunities <laughs> are also fantastic. So it sounds it sounds like a good problem to have from that perspective. How do you deal with the fact that, you know, you're dealing with any number of prioritization decisions, but none of them are potentially a bad decision? How do you deal with that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a great, uh, a great way to kind of break that down. Um, yeah, I think it's a, a lot of the same sort of prioritization strategies apply. It's more just being aware of being more sensitive to those kind of signals. So these kind of short-term signals that we'll get from, you know, aligning our OKRs, you know, kind of tracking those metrics and health metrics, figuring out what's working, what isn't. Um, Those short-term signals that can sometimes be kind of a smoke signal in any other sort of stage of growth can suddenly become a five alarm fire in a company that is in hyper growth. So, you know, any change to your um, competitive landscape, to your, you know, users, to, um, you know, any sort of broader changes in your system. I think the kind of recent acquisition of um, Activision by Microsoft is like a great example of that, um, can become an immediate kind of threat or opportunity or both overnight. Um, So you really, really need to understand the kind of, um, you know, where you need to react, where you need to potentially kind of pivot hard, you know, versus a more sort of established business area where you have the luxury of kind of seeing it out, maybe doing a more casual pivot, maybe sort of hedging your bets in multiple ways. It's just kind of heightens that sort of need, I would say, um, if that makes sense. So is it a massive challenge to stick with the strategy and say, okay, we know where we're going, we know we're going to get how to get there and just be disciplined? Or or is it just a matter of not chasing after, oh, here's another opportunity that we didn't think was going to come. And here's another one and another (laughs) one. Each of these could be amazing little businesses or generate amazing revenue on their own. Yeah, it's definitely a lot of the latter. And I think it's being, again, really mindful of having those spaces to analyze and understand, okay, are we saying no to this for good reason? Or are we saying yes, this for good reason? And again, um, really making sure you have those concrete business goals and product objectives. Because if you don't, of course, all of the shiny opportunities are going to seem awesome. You can kind of spin up little tiny teams. You can kind of reshuffle people infinitely. Um, you can always ramp up hiring. Um, it is, again, just a matter of how do you focus in a time like this? Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so what are some of the other challenges that you have in a rapidly growing business? Mm, for sure. Um, Others are, of course, because you're in hyper growth, you're also hiring like crazy. Um, So how do you kind of scale up and make those teams successful as soon as possible? Again, you don't really have the luxury of kind of months and months of onboarding, kind of setting those norms and expectations or reshifting those norms and expectations. You know, I'd say it's both making sure the people that you are hiring are comfortable with a little bit of that sort of chaotic landscape, um, but also ensuring that you have practices around 
hiring and onboarding that have been ideally well proven um, and are kind of fairly flexible and open to improvement iteration as needed. Um, I was really, I know, impressed when I onboarded at Vimeo. Um, I've also just kind of worked remotely for a really long time. So it was really exciting to join somewhere and be like, oh, I already have a laptop and an email working. <laughs> That's really exciting. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, making sure that you know, treating almost like your onboarding process as a product. There was a lecture I listened to um, from a woman that works works for Walmart's HR department um, about how they treat their onboarding like a you know product basically development process, and they have a life cycle around it because when you're onboarding literally hundreds and thousands of people a day, your onboarding process becomes a product. Um, and I would like us to kind of think about that in the same way, um, just because uh, you need a consistent you know positive. Uh, outcome from that process. And, you know, hiring like crazy only makes that that much more obvious. So is there a, a secret? Uh, so if if it's mean time to productivity uh, for, mm-hmm. for an engineer, say, or something like that, the first time that a, a product manager is able to make an informed decision for their team, mm-hmm. what yeah. is there any secrets, any tips the, of things that uh, you've hacks that hacks sounds like it's a, a, a cheat, but anything <laughs> that you've seen work really well that you wouldn't have thought of otherwise? Yeah, I, I like those metrics. I was like the idea of a hack. I'm thinking of those like bad, like kind of YouTube ads, like 10 ways to like get people <laughs> dogless. That's possible. Um, no, there's no hacks. You know, this really is one of those areas where it's just, you know, are you, do you have, do you have a process? Is that process kind of well-documented and is everyone actually going to following the right checklist? Um, and then of course, like any process, are you actually tracking success and are you kind of collecting um, feedback and iterating at the end of it. So we have a really rigorous kind of onboarding flow. And then after 90 days kind of getting feedback, um, I get kind of feedback at the manager level. I give feedback at the manager level, set kind of broader expectations for six months and then kind of, you know, one year growth. And then HR does the same for kind of what they could do better, what information is maybe missing, uh, what sort of, you know, kind of creepy crawlies got unturned over rocks at day 89 of 90, um, kind of that fun stuff. Um, uh, so yeah, no, no kind of YouTube hack, but um, <laughs> <laughs> again, just kind of be mindful of what the process is and are you actually getting feedback and iterating on it and understanding what's working and what isn't? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That, that onboarding experience is so critical to, uh, to setting that team up for success. And I think also it's even more challenging with um, product people and onboarding product people, because there's always so much to learn and so much to get up to speed with and it really it just you know it takes quite a long time to to gain all of the knowledge and meet all the team and build all the relationships that you need to really get productive so yeah it's tricky one that (laughs) no for sure and that paired with I felt this when I onboarded I know every member of my team has felt this when they onboarded there's this urge I think to try to build something from day one or to try Mm. to fix something you see from day one or to bring in your own sort of assumptions um, or experience to say, oh, this is definitely how it should be. Let's just go do something. And it's, it can be really hard to sit on your hands for, you know, a few weeks and really kind of take stock of what the current state of things is before you start committing code or working with teams. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard, but it is definitely for the better if you can kind of resist that urge. Yeah, definitely. It's that product manager thing of like, must deliver value. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, 100%. <laughs> um, so you had a, a third product challenge that you were going to mention. Tell us about that one. 
Yeah, I think the third piece is really just understanding, especially as you you know continue to grow and scale and understand your existing product market fit or how potentially you want to address new markets. Um, you know, really thinking through you know your again team's processes and how ultimately rigor and consistency will kind of always win over consistency and luck. But that can also be really hard if you're in a situation where you need to maybe transform teams. Maybe um, you're working in a platform where it's a older product. There's a kind of really, it's a more mature kind of market area. Um, and then, you know, somehow something ships and you kind of move into this hyper growth stage. Or potentially you're just kind of working with new people um, that are maybe from a background um, where they don't have a ton of, of sort of kind of process in place. Um, I'm also just especially thinking about there's a lot of talk around product process right now. I think Marty's most recent um, newsletter has a lot of people talking. But ultimately, again, as you grow and scale, not just on the hiring side, but on the kind of team success side, it, it really does, there really does need to be kind of, again, some way to understand how are you measuring success? How are you measuring overall health? Um, and how are you kind of pivoting your process or what you're doing in order to continually drive towards those. And that is again, done through some kind of process. <laughs> I don't yeah. think, you know, we need to be dogmatic about it, but there just needs to be kind of something there um, versus, you know, just sort of hitting the jackpot on one potential kind of feature release or new product, and then trying to kind of chase your tail and have that again without any real understanding of why it was successful. You know, I've seen it a bunch of times when you've got a smaller company and, you, as you said, you employ six and seven at, at one. It's very easy to have a shorthand and a, just a way of, oh, I'll just do it or turning around and talking to someone else. And then all mm -hmm. of a sudden you've got three squads and then 10 squads and you can't just do things the same way. You've got to have that, that rigor. Is there anything that you've seen that helps people try and uh, adopt that or have you seen places where it you know you just can't adapt to a different way of doing things. Yeah, it's where you can really show the value of some of these things is where I think people really get it. Like like anyone, I think you introduce new process and especially if you do it a lot at once, people get really itchy and are like, oh, why are you making me do this? I don't really understand this. This is just busy work. This is just making me do this so that you get something out of it, but I don't necessarily see any value from it. Um, I think it's where you can really show other teams, you know, even something as simple as, okay, I'm sharing out uh, notes from a meeting or doing a quick like two minute video recording of talking through what the outcomes were and why it's relevant to this team. Um, you know, kind of showing value for a process and why the team should then do that themselves as well for other teams um, can be really helpful. Um, so framing it in a way of kind of why it's valuable to them and to the broader business and not just do the thing because we told you to and exec doesn't feel like reading a thousand different emails or looking through, you know, 40 different Jira boards um, is really kind of, I'd say the first step um, of that. And one of the assumptions that I've got around working in a hyper growth business is uh, that everyone is just like crazy busy and working really long hours and everything is in chaos. Um, so is that true? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you know, uh, certainly it also means you need to be somewhere where the business has taken the time to set, you know, rules and guidance around, we don't want you working long hours. We want you, we don't want you working on weekends. Um, 
you know, again, Vimeo, I'm really lucky. We're very flexible about kind of, we have unlimited PTO. I kind of work when I need to. And, you know, some nights that means working a little bit later or starting my day a little bit earlier. Um, I work with teams in um, Ukraine and India. So kind of having those flex hours is useful. And it's less about kind of, I guess, everything being in, in chaos. <laughs> and, you know, just more being mindful of kind of, again, why you're doing what you're doing and kind of always remembering how it's providing value. Um, this is actually a great tie into what I was thinking about with the foundations class I taught with Mind the Product recently. Of we were talking a lot about the value of roadmaps and how we're looking at sort of uh, you know problem first roadmaps or product goals sort of first roadmaps versus solution based roadmaps. I think especially in these kind of scenarios, it's always helpful to kind of point towards again why why you're doing what you're doing and not just kind of getting lost in the sort of feature suck because especially in this sort of escalated sort of environment, um, it can also be easy to fall into that or just feel like we're chasing the next feature um, or kind of falling into that build trap, I guess, a la yeah. uh, Melissa Perry. Yeah. Okay. So I'm also uh, another question about the environment and one that builds off of, of roadmaps, actually. So mm. what, the, the best values and use cases for roadmaps is building alignment and understanding for teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I've always heard that companies that are unsuccessful are breeding grounds for bad politics, but there's no, uh, the best cure for the, for politics is success. Is that actually true when you're growing that fast? Is it a, a healthier, more collaborative environment or is it potentially just as, as ruthless as in a company that's not doing so well? Interesting. I don't know if I necessarily kind of to tie those two things together. Um, but you know, I will say, I don't just from my personal experience in both the companies I've worked in that have had hyper growth, it really has been more positive. There have been less silos. So maybe there is something there. Um, you know, maybe this kind of chicken or the egg, like you do typically achieve hyper growth through winning together, working together more tightly. Um, you know, I've seen that or experienced that as folks are typically more likely to pitch in as needed and kind of get whatever is needed across the finish line. Um, I do think that just kind of comes back to folks are more aware of the broader business goals and kind of what the goals are um, at then how that kind of translates into product goals um, and kind of the importance of getting that across the finish line and all working towards that is more important than any single thing you may be working in your own personal silo. Um, so I don't know. I, I guess that has been my experience personally, um, but I can't say that's always the case um, for, for any business and hyper growth. And when you're working in, in that pace, like, do you have to cut corners in order to get things done? Like from everything that you've said so far, it sounds like everything actually is just running much better and everyone's way more <laughs> organized and doing everything really properly. But I imagine the pace at which you're moving, you know, sometimes maybe you do have to cut corners or make compromises and are there particular areas where, you, you know, it's kind of, safer to do that and areas where you're like no we're definitely not cutting any corners here for sure um yeah i think there are areas i I think of it less as cutting corners and more just having the comfort of where you can move fast and have a little bit more flexibility in your decisions it's that kind of type one versus type two decision making made famous by amazon right where you have to have comfort as a product manager and you will never be 100 percent right if you are it's definitely too late um (laughs) so really 
feeling confident in making those distinctions of, okay, this is a type one problem. We really need to wrestle through this and try to get this right with the information we have available to us now um, versus, you know what? I, I just, let's, let's make a decision. Let's try this out. This is a P2 decision. This is easily reversible. We will work from this either way. Let's just ensure we have kind of the right tooling to make those learnings successful in place and move on. Um, so really being mindful of not wasting time on those P2 decisions. I think there's also scenarios, especially where you're in a situation where you may be new to market or in a new TAM, total addressable market. Um, in my old company, we pivoted a few times and um, I learned as part of that, sometimes being first to market is better than kind of anything else. Um, so you can kind of set the ground rules for this. These are the norms, these are the standards. Um, I'm kind of dabbling in Web3 stuff recently. And it's been interesting to see that with the launch of Looks Rare, which is a new sort of M NFT marketplace kind of versus the existing kind of competition of um, OpenSea. So that's definitely been a lesson where I've seen kind of, not necessarily getting kind of corners, but just kind of expediting where you maybe potentially wouldn't. Certainly areas where we are not cutting corners um, is again, that sort of, you know, like you said, just being really tightly organized around build, measure, learn cycles. Um, it can be really easy to revert to, again, that sort of build trap mentality when you're under that intense pressure. Um, and then just over communicating. I have never been in a situation where I've slacked someone something or talked to someone or told someone something. You're like, yeah, Cassidy, you told me that before. Like, nope, that's <laughs> never, literally, literally never happened. Um, you cannot over communicate. It is not a thing. Um, so just being mindful of those, I think, as well. So when you're in the environment where you, you, feel like you've got the magic wand and every every quarter things keep getting better, numbers are growing, and mm -hmm. you feel like the decisions are going well. How do you avoid the dangers of uh, bias around that? You you know, bias towards we're right, we always make good decisions. Oh, yeah, that's a hard question. Um, it can be really hard, I think, to be kind of avoid getting caught up in the Kool-Aid, is that the right term? Like, you know, kind of under thinking that, okay, past success will always indicate kind of future success. Um, this will probably sound lame, but again, kind of resting, you know, being mindful of your, not just your OKRs, but also your health metrics and kind of how those are tracking. Um, broader KPIs will also always be, of course, a better indicator of longer term direction. So are things looking and feeling the way that they should? Are maybe some things kind of getting wonky in ways that you're not super comfortable with. Um, but I, I, I hate to be lame, but I think it just always goes back to the numbers because that's where you can be really unemotional and understand, okay, how are things looking? I'm also, I love jumping in with customers and customer conversations. Um, we have some customers we speak with very regularly and also um, do regular user interviews around you know, some ideas we're throwing around or of course kind of existing functionality. And nothing will kind of bring you down to earth faster than jumping into one of those and hearing a customer say, you know, actually this makes no sense to me or no, we stopped using this tool and I really don't find this valuable anymore. And that, you know, that kind of shakes me to my core and that will really be a great sort of, if I'm in one of those situations, kind of help me level set and understand what are we doing wrong or what do we need to address differently? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Always great talking to customers. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so we've talked a lot about kind of how to set yourself up for success in this kind of environment. Um, but what, uh, what kind of things can go wrong, um, in your experience when you're in that hyper growth phase and how do you avoid them? Mm, great question. Um, 
So there are kind of four areas, at least, that I've kind of thought about. Um, the first comes to mind for my previous company is just sort of chasing funding. Um, it's going to especially feel really hard if you haven't necessarily found product market fit yet, or you're, you know, you have, and maybe the market is just kind of changed um, dramatically overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think this again, just comes back to how you can kind of find that and ultimately focus on your users problems or, you know, jobs to be done. Um, are you as a business actually solving a problem? Um, or, or are you just kind of bending over backwards for this particular round of funding because a certain area of, you know, business is hot right now, a certain kind of competitor is hot right now. Um, I think we saw a lot of this recently play out when, you know, Clubhouse came out and everyone was like, oh my gosh, Clubhouse is the cool hot new thing. And then everyone came out with a kind of audio related tool. And now really the only one I've kind of seen that's been consistently utilized is is Twitter spaces, which makes sense to a certain degree. But um, yeah, I think it, it can be really tricky, especially if you're in some some of these newer markets to avoid that sort of, again, shiny new thing and really focus on um, what problems are we trying to solve and ultimately what problems are we not trying to solve? Um, you can kind of figure out that um, and avoid that sort of shiny object syndrome um, also by focusing on those things as well. You know, another area is just sort of lack of of kind of communication across teams, across silos, or more broadly, how you kind of share information across um, a company as it's growing uh, again and scaling like crazy. Uh, ultimately, it's you know, like we talked about earlier, giving them a a motivation to to do so um, in a way that's kind of consistent and scalable. Um, but if those are in place and you're still not seeing the communication where it should be, um, kind of really getting to the root of why that is happening. Are there not spaces for them to do so? Do they not understand the value in doing so? You know, is there maybe some apathy around, um, you know, kind of the problems they're focusing on or a lack of understanding or um, alignment in what they're focusing on? You know, and then at the end of the day, also remembering we're going through a lot right now outside of uh, work and all of that stuff. So, um, yeah. And I, I suppose with um with the kind of lack of information sharing and and the risks there as well because we talked earlier about onboarding product people but mm-hmm. a lot of the time the product function is uh kind of very critical in terms of onboarding like other functions within the business so engineering mm-hmm. or sales or marketing um and being able to kind of uh, bring everyone up to speed on what the product roadmap is or, you know, what the the focus is, what the strategy is, and also how you guys work. So, um, yeah, I can imagine there's like just an awful lot of bringing everyone up to speed all the time on what's going on. It is, yeah. And also as product, you're typically kind of the point of first contact, especially with new hires. Like this week or last week alone, I was recently touting with some new engineering hires, also some new design hires. So, you know, as the product person, you're always the the spoke in the wheel, which is good in most cases, but also, you know, again, can be a lot. Um, Yeah. And I think the last piece I really want to cover is just around the recency bias or confirmation bias, which, you know, Randy, I know we talked a bit about already, but just ensuring the teams kind of have those information gathering and validation systems already built into their processes. So um, again, going back to build, measure, learn, not just build, 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 but our teams, do teams feel like they're supported in taking time and resources to run proper discovery to, you know, ship lower, medium or high fidelity testing and kind of work through the kinks before really committing those, you know, high value resources to um, broader design development and shipping. 
um, and ensuring that kind of tests are run through the same rigorous process as other sorts of areas of validation. Really, again, leaning on those is, is incredibly important. Cassie, this has been really fantastic. As with anything good, anything hypergrowth, uh, we're <laughs> running out of time. So I just want to ask one last question. So having gone through this a couple of times and working in these fast-paced environments, would you do anything different now? Would you want to work in a slower environment? What's your what's What kind of pace do you like working at? Yeah, you know, if you'd asked me maybe a few years ago or even you know, early on in my career, I would have said, no, I'm looking for something more relaxed. But now that I've kind of caught the bug, (laughs) I don't know if I can work in another environment. It just is so exciting and satisfying to be able to kind of see um, those immediate positive outcomes and indicators and sort of chase that um, thrill of growth that's happening overnight. And you feel it as this kind of energy too. You know, I, I mentioned early on in the podcast, it's not just kind of a um, cold numbers caker definition. It really is about kind of a, a vibe you get from everyone you're working with and folks feel it too. It's, it really is just exciting. So um, I don't, I don't think I could go back. Yeah. I, I, I do really just kind of love this, this environment and this energy. Amazing. Thanks Cassidy. It's been so great talking to you today. Yeah, here as well. This has been awesome. Thank you both. You know, hypergrowth should not be confused with hyperspace. (laughs) Yes, we're not going to be the first company to run the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs. Exactly. And uh, if you are trying to survive and thrive in hyperspace, I would recommend things like spacesuits, a spaceship. Astronaut ice cream. Astronaut, yeah. Um, a compass. Oh no, actually, that's not going to help, is it? <laughs> anyway. Duct tape. Duct tape fixes everything. Yeah, and a good cup of tea because I'm English. So uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like and subscribe, and we'll see you next time. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith. And me, Randy Silver. Emily Tate is our producer and Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW. That's P-A-U. Thanks to Arna Kittler, who runs Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. Connect with your local product community via Product Tank, our regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide. If there's not one near you, you can consider starting one yourself. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank. Product Tank is a global community of meetups driven by and for product people. We offer expert talks, group discussion, and a safe environment for product people to come together and share learnings and tips. Mm-hmm.